Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome to episode 187 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. A few months ago, as many of you guys know, I created this quiz to help you problem solve some of the areas of your sex life that's not working for you. I personally love quizzes. This is a more kind of a brief one. It takes about five to seven minutes and specifically designed for women. So if you are struggling with kind of having the sex life that you want, or you want to, you're kind of curious to see what are some of the areas that can improve, I invite you to take this quiz and you will get a personalized response with kind of the areas that you need to focus on. You can find the link in the show notes. I'm very excited about this conversation that we're having today. My guest is Dr. Steven Snyder. A few years ago, I read his book and I was blown away. Uh, So his book called Love Worth Making, How to Have Ridiculously Great Sex in Long-Lasting Relationship. Because one of the challenges that I see often among my clients and also between my friends and people that I came across with is that how to remain excited uh, sexually in our long-term relationships. Because as novelty dies off, sometimes it's hard to keep the passion alive. And more importantly, it's really hard to kind of fuel the desire in a long-term relationship. Dr. Snyder's book goes in depth on what can you do to recreate that and cultivate it. And in our conversation today, he talks about some of the mistakes that people are making and how, how possibly it's not too late for you to change those and correct those. And he makes suggestion on steps that you can take in your order to create a passionate marriage starting today. As I mentioned, Dr. Snyder is an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. His practice is entirely devoted to sex and relationship issues. He's been featured in so many different magazines and contributes to various podcasts. And then also in 2012, he hosted Dolce & Gabbana's International Law of their new fragrance, Desire, in Russia. And his book was published in 2018. And one of the reviews that he got was from Dr. Jennifer Ashton from ABC's Good Morning America. And the person wrote, A love worth making does for sex therapy that Hamilton did for Broadway musical. This playful yet profound book reminds us that sex should be easy and can be once we learn to As I mentioned, our guest is Dr. Steven Snyder. He's an associate clinical professor at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. His practice is entirely devoted to sex and relationship issues. He contributed to so many different journal articles, magazines, and also he he was a guest in many of the well-known podcasts. As I mentioned that his first book called Love Worth Making, How to Have Ridiculously Great Sex and Long-Lasting Relationships, One of the reviews uh, he got was from Dr. Jennifer Ashton from ABC's Good Morning America. And she wrote, love worth making does for sex therapy what Hamilton did for the Broadway musical. 
This playful yet profound book reminds us that sex should be easy and can be once we learn to get out of our own way. Before I dive into our conversation today, I wanted to thank our sponsor, BetterHelp. If you are a therapist and you're struggling with doing the billing and getting referrals and getting insurance panels, BetterHelp is a perfect fit for you. They get thousands of people on their website on daily basis who are looking for a therapist. So if you're a therapist, you can sign up for their program and you can just solely focus on doing counseling and you don't need to worry about the billing and insurance and referrals. So my invitation for you is to visit betterhelp.com sexology and complete a brief application to get started. Again, that's betterhelp.com sexology. Here's my conversation with Dr. Snyder. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am excited and honored to have Dr. Steven Snyder on our show. Steve, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to this. Well, I am so excited for this conversation. As I was just sharing with you, this is the kind of almost number one presenting issue I see in couples that people want to make monogamy work, but it's mm-hmm. really tough to, especially long term. I know Esther Paul says like wanting what you have. Tell us what are some of the barriers that you see that people experience when it comes to having a great sex in a monogamous long term relationships. Okay. Well, some of the barriers that people experience are that they don't know how to have good sex. It's amazing to me as a sex therapist, and I imagine this is your experience too, how many people think good sex is just a matter of getting him hard and her wet, or both of them hard if they're both men, or both of them wet if they're both women, and everybody having an orgasm. And it just really doesn't make it. And yet that's how a lot of couples have sex. So one of the things that's different right, that I do differently from Esther is we actually talk about the nuts and the bolts of the actual sex itself. So what people do is they forget to pay attention to how psychologically aroused they are because you can be physically aroused, you can be hard or wet and not be psychologically aroused. So one of the things that I talk about first in the book is kind of what is psychological arousal and how do we know we have it and how do we know how much we have of it? Is that making sense? It does. And I love that you also focus on kind of sexual part of things because I feel it's at the heart of it. Uh, so how do you define good sex? Okay. Well, first of all, first question is how do you define good sexual arousal? Because there really is no vocabulary for sexual arousal. You know, Masters and Johnson in the 1950s observed lots of couples with the meters and gauges and cameras and everything and discovered all about the sexually aroused body. But nobody's really spent any time exploring the sexually aroused mind. It's much more difficult because it's subjective. But if you get into the subjectivity of it, and I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people about this because I get really interested in this because it was this gap in the, in the knowledge. I heard three basic kinds of things when people describe what sexual arousal really felt like. The first was that in a state of sexual arousal, sex, your partner, they've really grabbed your attention. You're not thinking about anything else. It's a different kind of state of mind. It's a, a focused state of mind. The makers of porn sites know that, that if they get somebody sexually aroused, the person's going to forget all of their other cares and so forth. 
people who are sexually aroused are not as responsible. They arrive late to meetings if they arrive at all. They don't care whether the phone's ringing. They don't care who's calling. They just want them to go away. So that's the sexually aroused mind. That first aspect is the aspect of absorption. The second aspect is that you get regressed. Your sexually aroused mind is, is not as fully adult. It doesn't handle stress as well. It doesn't handle frustration or disappointment as well. We could talk a lot about that. It just kind of wants things. And psychologically, you know, in mental health, it's kind of a regression to a more infantile state of mind. And that's key. If you're not regressing to a more infantile state of mind, then you're not really fully aroused. We want people really to be regressed to about a two-year-old level when they're, when they're really at the peak of arousal. So you really just want that sense of uh, kind of innate selfishness that most people have when they're very at an infantile level. And the common word we use for that is passion. What passion is, is kind of an erotic selfishness directed towards your partner. Most people find that a turn on. So absorption, regression. And the third one is validation. There's something about really good sexual arousal that makes people feel, yeah, 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 that's me. That's really who I am. All that other stuff, forget it. That's nothing. This is really, really where I live. It gives a person that feeling of validation and like, yeah, yeah. And that's why, by the way, somebody who's gay or lesbian can have an opposite sex relationship and everything could function. They could get wet or hard. They could have an orgasm, but they could make it didn't really make me feel like me. So there's something about a really good experience of sexual arousal that should give you that feeling of validation. So absorption, regression, validation, that's how to tell. Or if you combine all those three together and you want to go really fast, I tell patients, you want to feel dumb and happy. And it's, am <laughs> it's amazing. It, it's amazing how few people really tune in to whether they're feeling dumb and happy. They know whether they're hard or wet. They know whether they had an orgasm, but they have no idea as to whether they felt dumb and happy or not. So that's a, that would be the best answer I would give. Well, these are all great points. And I know that your book is full of great material. It's my experience, at least based on the couples that I see, and many of them are heterosexual, absorption piece is the hardest, at least based on what I'm hearing, uh, for long-term relationship because we get habituated to the partner we see them we think mm -hmm. we know what they're thinking so how can people create that psychological space for themselves okay so this is really interesting because you know if i understand esther correctly and she and i have talked a lot about this what she says is you want to tune into those aspects of your partner that you don't know because it's an illusion to say that you really know your partner. The fact is, the truth is, you knew your partner today, yesterday, but maybe not today. And they're feeling different. They are different today. And there are lots of things about your partner that you they haven't told you about. And they may never tell you about. So you want to tune into that sense of mystery about your partner. I think that's got some value. My own thinking goes in a slightly different direction. My own thinking goes, what you're going to be doing with your partner may be the exact same thing. And it's the exact same person, but you're a different person. You know, it's like the old saying, you never step in the same river twice because you're a different person. So it's not that your partner is different or your partner is unknown to you. It's that you're a different person and which, what inspires you on a particular day may be different from what inspired you the day before. I actually go in a fairly radical direction in my book, which I've gotten in a lot of trouble about because I'm a religious person and uh, religion has gotten kind of a bad name in uh, mental health in general because it's associated with repression and shame and all that stuff. But I think there's some virtue in religion because people, religious people go through the same kind of problem in terms of finding inspiration after they've been within a religious framework for a long, long time. And the things that initially inspired you may not inspire you anymore. And so 
The question is, where do you find inspiration? And the answer is, you don't know. And so basically what you want to do in a religious context is you're open yourself to inspiration. That's, you know, more or less what prayer represents. It says, I'm, I'm open to it. Here I am. I'm open to inspiration. And my suggestion for somebody who's of that turn of mind is when you're with your partner, it's the same thing. You collect yourself you're there and you're open to inspiration. You don't know where it's going to come from. You don't know whether it's going to be the scent of their hair or a memory about them from 10 years ago or this way uh, hurt their skin feels or perhaps the sound of their voice. And you're just registering all these things and you're just being aware of all these things. And you figure, hmm, maybe at some point I'll receive some inspiration. And that's not something I can control. All I can do is be receptive to it and open to it. So it's that attitude of receptiveness and openness. And what that in, in what I do with it in my book is kind of the leading edge in sex therapy these days is the mindfulness revolution, which says that there are basically two modes of being uh, for humans. There is uh, thinking and doing on the one hand, and on the other hand, awareness. And we're pretty much in the thinking and doing mode all the time. So it's very useful in preparation for sex to shift into awareness mode. Yoga is a fabulous thing to do before sex because most people find before after they have yoga, food tastes better. And the reason is because you're more into awareness mode. If you do yoga and then have sex, sex is better usually too for the same reason because you're in awareness mode. And awareness mode is, has some relationship to what I described earlier as prayer mode, where you're saying, you know what, I'm not doing anything here. I'm just open to inspiration. And there's an openness and a, uh, a sense of whatever is going to happen, I'm not in charge and I'm not judging it. I'm not evaluating it. I'm just here in the moment and uh, let's see what happens. I know that's a long-winded answer. Did that kind of get to what you were asking yes. about? Yes. No, I think that's okay. fantastic. And I was thinking okay. also about the mindfulness piece as you were talking about this, kind of entering the situation with the curious attitude and kind of like bringing this curious mind to it. Because what were people, at least what client that I see, and I'm, I'm sure it's it's like that for many of our listeners that they had this satisfying sex. So now what, what they do for arousal to show up, they are completely detached from what's going on in the moment and they right. are immersed in this uh, sexual fantasies and they know that works, but it's almost an opposite of what you're describing. Exactly. Because it's something that you're doing. It, it, it's something you're doing because really good arousal, you shouldn't really be doing anything. It should be just like jumping into the current, letting the current carry you along wherever it's going to carry you. So it's different. Beautiful. And it's not, it's not what people usually do. Yeah. Yes. Um, one, one, of the, one of the quarrels I have with most sex writing, and one of the reasons I wrote this book is I couldn't find it anywhere, so I knew I'd have to write it myself. So I was the chairman of the uh, Consumer Book Award Committee for the Society of Sex Therapy and Research for years, and I've just read so many sex books, and they just bored me to death. And I thought, no, this is not it. This is not it. And so many of them talked about some variation of novelty, novelty and adventure. And, uh, you know, maybe a new sex toy, maybe a new sex position, maybe a sexy destination, maybe doing something different with your partner. And I go, ah, come on. You know, you've been married 20 or 30 years. It, it doesn't really work. And chasing the one of the principal problems in our sexual culture these days. We're always looking for that new angle, that new thing. You know, Fifty Shades of Grey got American women very, very excited for a week and a half. And then everything settled down to normal because that's in the nature of the sexual mind. It says, what have you done for me lately? What's new? You know, you chase for novelty and you end up eventually like being the parent 
of a spoiled child. You know, you just keep buying them more and more and more toys. Every toy gets played with for 10 minutes and then thrown in the corner and the kid says, hey, what are you going to do for me next? You don't want that. Your sexual mind is in a way like a child, as I mentioned. It's a regressed, childish part of yourself. And it's never going to be any different than that. But you have to exert a healthy discipline in your sexual mind. And you have to be a good parent to your sexual self. And you have to say, settle down. It's going to be okay. Don't panic. You don't have to go chasing after some fancy toy. Let's just let's just play with the toys we have. It's nice. What an interesting analogy. And I agree with you. I think it's easier. I can see it where people are kind of like desperately we're going for the newest and best toys and oh my God, uh, yeah. resorts. But because it's something you can purchase, you can buy uh, and they teach you they give you this promise of you can buy this if you do this but I think yeah. with the state of mind it requires as you said discipline and work and many people are in this state of discipline that I, like a this state of kind of like mind that thinking about I haven't been able to discipline my mind for years and how mm-hmm. how can I change it now so I think that part of it also can be intimidating well obviously as a mental practitioner health practitioner you know the discipline is it has to be a balanced virtue. There's such a thing as under-discipline, and there's also such a thing as over-discipline. And we know lots of people in our practices who are over-disciplined and who are under-disciplined. And it's just kind of this balance. It's like being a good parent, you know? Just a healthy sense of, uh, you know, it's okay. You know, you don't have to be totally bridled. But at the same time, you know, you know what the limits are. And so, you know, that comes up in terms of this whole thing about open relationships and open marriages, which is huge these days, non-consensual, consensual non-monogamy and so forth. I, you know, my sense is that very few couples are really going to thrive in consensual non-monogamy. There certainly are some who do and more credit to them. But I think most people are not not quite ready to take that step. And for those people, there are all these things that, you know, threesomes and fantasies and so forth and role play and stuff. And I just, I think to myself, this is all just fancy toys. This doesn't really get to the heart of of, of what you need to do because the heart has to do with feeling. And so that's why I start in my book talking about feelings, you know, validation, regression, absorption, dumb and happy. Is it making you happy? That kind of thing. Now, I do want to say as an aside that I think there's a gender difference. And I think one of the things that Esther Perel's book, uh, Mating in Captivity, does speak to is people's need for variety and their need for adventure. I happen to think that this need is stronger for most women than it is for for most men. Because I think that, and I don't know why this is, and I hope it's okay that I'm making this generalization, but I feel it when I'm sitting with my women patients, and I feel it in my own life, that there is something, it's like there was a woman, a, a, a movie called A Room with a View. And they say ladies have, to have a, ladies have to have a view. They need to be, have a view. They need to see something beautiful. They need to be something new and beautiful. They need it. You know, my wife and I go to a party. I can wear the same thing. She needs a new dress. There is something that I think for most women, they do have a greater need for variety. I mean, this is one of the things that people, some people like Wednesday Martin have been talking about recently, that women get more easily bored in relationships than men do. Most guys are a little bit simpler that way. And I may be a little biased in that I'm a guy. And I'm aware that many men feel different than many women. For instance, a couple in my office, the woman will say, let's go to this beautiful, exotic, erotic resort or something. Won't that be amazing? And the guy will look at me and I'll look at him and we'll say, yeah, it sounds nice, but that's not going to make me any hotter than I was before. (laughs) Whereas the woman, it might, it actually might. (laughs) 
So I think there's a gender difference. I think there's it's a subtle gender difference in there. I think most women are more prone to erotic boredom. And I think most more women are prone to be getting more restless with erotic routine. And I hear many more women in my office complain that the guy just does the same thing every time. And I don't hear that many men complain about that. I'm so glad you highlighted that because that was my experience as a psychologist and clinician that seeing that, okay, people saying that my wife lost interest in sex, she has low desire and all of these things that we all like sex therapists are hearing in the office. But what I was seeing was like, no, they lost interest in this kind of particular context. And when I read Wednesday's book, that was so validating. I was like, okay, great. That like, you know, she talks about the studies and experience of women that people like women at times, they need more of a variety. Is that, mm-hmm. is that the reason that you think women lose interest in sex and long-term relationships? Or you think there are other reasons contributing to that? Well, it's a really good question. You know, the word that you use just now, which I think is key, which is context. For most women, context really, really matters. You know, Emily Nagoski, I hope I'm not just name dropping here in her book, uh, Come As You Are, from uh, I think uh, 2015, she talks a lot about, spends hundreds of pages talking about context and the importance of context. What is a sexy context and what is not a sexy context? And for most women, you know, a monogamous relationship with their husband of so many years is just not a particularly sexy concept text. And a resort, particularly if the guy took the initiative of taking you to that resort, that's a very sexy context. Or even a guy taking you to a new restaurant you've never been to. Hey, that's a pretty sexy context. And especially if it's a different wine than the one you usually drink. Now, here's the thing about us guys. For the most part, we're not sensitive to context. Most guys don't register context at all. So the woman in my office who's married, the the couple in my office where the woman says, let's go to this sexy resort. Won't that be amazing? The guy goes, eh. I don't get it. And I look to him and I go, I don't get it because I'm not wired that way. Because male desire is often not that sensitive to context. You know, if I could be really base about it, guys are basically fetishists. The, uh, is this a PG show or an R-rated show? Oh, definitely R-rated. <laughs> okay, good, good. So guys are fetishists. You know, like a foot fetishist. You give him a foot, he's going to be turned on. Doesn't matter what else is going on, just the foot, right? Most guys, you give him tits and ass, he's going to be turned on. Doesn't matter what else is going on. So guys are fetishists. They just respond to body parts. And, you know, obviously there's a little bit more to it, but not much. And women don't really understand that at all because they're all into context. And so the context is so much more important. The classic example, negative context, man grabs his wife passionately and they're making out and both feeling excited. They head toward the bedroom arm in arm and she sees his socks on the floor. Now for her, that's a really bad context because she thinks, oh, that bum, you know, I'm married to somebody who puts his socks on the floor. And I told him yesterday not to put his socks on the floor. And now he doesn't care about me. And her desire disappears. He sees her socks on the floor, doesn't do anything because he's just responding in a fetishistic way to the sexual cues that her body provides. And so it's a completely different ballgame. And I, I can totally see what you're talking about. It's my experience. It was a little bit of learning curve around that, that I was talking to my husband about, like, you know, when I watch porn stories, I hate it that the storyline is like uh, so fake. I was going on and on about like, you know, the, I don't like the setting. I don't like the story. And he was saying that like, honey, I was like, is that bothering you? He's like, I'm not even paying attention to those. Exactly. <laughs> so it's so interesting. That's the thing. Because for a woman, context matters so much. As I say, Emily Yagoski spent hundreds of pages on this. 
For a man, it really, really doesn't matter that much. And so it's just one of those divides between the genders. Unfortunately, that male experience doesn't get communicated very much in the sex literature because almost all people who write about sexuality are a big deal of practice. I go to sexuality meetings, there's 90% women and very few men, very few straight men. So the whole thing uh, in the dialogue, the male, the, the male voice doesn't really get registered very much. That's why I was so interested in writing this book and see, you know, what it would be like to write in a male voice. It was not easy, actually. Can I tell you what it was like? Yes, please do. <laughs> I would write a chapter because we men, we only get accepted in the general community if we behave ourselves because we don't want to be labeled as one of those bad men, you know, because we're really kind of a minority and anybody who's a minority realizes that you're only accepted if you identify yourself as a good one and not a bad one. So as a man, if you're going to be trusted and listened to, you have to identify as a good one and not a bad one because you're a minority. And so I would write a chapter and I'd show it to my wife and she'd say, no, you can't say that. So I'd <laughs> rewrite it and I'd say, uh, I'd, I'd show it to her and she'd say, no, you can't say that either. And so I read it a third time and she'd say, okay, that's okay. So we did that with every chapter and there are 18 chapters. And so all the chapters have been like, you know, uh, they've been scrubbed. And so I kept all my notes though, of all the things that I didn't write. And, uh, and someday I'm going to put it in a second book, but I don't know when that's going to happen. But you know, we men, we don't really talk about the things that we really think and feel, you know, usually at a sex therapy meeting, Guys just nod their head and we go, context, 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 absolutely. <laughs> and in our hearts and souls, we're going, are you kidding? And we get together afterwards and we go, did that really speak to you? And you go, no, nah, no, nah, not at all. Well, we soon keep you're making me nervous. <laughs> we, we, keep quiet. we keep quiet because we're minorities. Just like 50 years ago, the women in the audience kept quiet because they were the minority. People who are the minority keep quiet because they want to show that they're the good ones and not the bad ones. The women in the audience 50 years ago wanted to show that they were the good women and not those angry women. The men in the audience these days who are the minority want to show that they're good men and not insensitive men or toxic men or whatever. So it's just the way men, people in minorities behave. What an interesting point. And I think you gave lots of hope to our listeners that they are in a monogamous relationships because I feel sometimes even people, as you mentioned, they feel kind of forced to maybe I have to open up my relationship. So it's kind of a Sophie's choice of whether I'm going to open up the relationship and have exciting sex or I'm yeah. going to be in a sexless relationship with a wonderful companion. So it's good that you're saying that there is there is hope and it's possible to revive and rekindle passion in a long-term relationship. So uh, for our listeners that they are perhaps in a sexless relationship, what are some of the ways that you recommend them? What are some of the steps you recommend them to take? Okay. Now, sex relationships, as you know, are very, very common. It's like 15 to 20% of all relationships. And it's a huge issue because people feel bad about it. And uh, obviously not everybody in a sexual relationship, sexual relationship feels bad. There's some people who are fine with it, but most people in sexual sexless relationships feel bad about them. One thing to realize about sexual relationships is it doesn't matter how they got started. They all have the same impediment, which is generally called in psychology the Westermark effect, that if you're living under the same roof with somebody for months or years and you're not having sex with them, they start to register as like a sibling and it starts to feel very, very awkward. And so people in sexless relationships who try and move towards being sexual with each other, they register that and it feels awkward. It feels wrong. It feels icky. So you got to let them know that that's a natural thing. And the good news about that effect is that it's reversible. If you just calm down 
about the fact that it feels a little awkward. After a while, it doesn't feel so awkward anymore. So that's a really important thing for a couple to keep in mind. The next thing to keep in mind is actually to get into the details of what was it that led to the relationship becoming sexless. Very often, it's because you were having bad sex. Sex where you were just chasing an orgasm, but you weren't legitimately aroused, or you were just doing sex because you felt it was your obligation, where there was something about your partner that was really turning you off and that uh, you just didn't enjoy, didn't make you feel good about yourself, didn't make you feel dumb and happy. So that's really important to help sort that out, you know, with a sex therapist or occasionally a couple of sort that out on their own. And then there are people who are in sexless relationships and it had nothing to do with the sex at all. The sex was fine, but there was some dark current emotionally where they just really weren't connecting. And that usually does require some kind of professional guidance to figure out. Has that been your experience or has your experience been different? No, certainly I talk about the awkwardness at almost all of the couples that they are transitioning to becoming yeah. kind of sexual again because they, they the expectation is, okay, we're doing this conversation in sessions, maybe we're doing sense state focus but then they're going to be a smooth transition that we're going to go to the place that they were or even better which yeah. i always say like you know that's that's going to be lots of awkward encounter um, exactly it's going to feel awkward experience. you know it's going to feel awkward yeah you know in advance it's going to feel awkward and if it feels awkward just accept that it feels awkward and I think the other thing that you mentioned that was right on is sometimes people are kind of romanticizing the early kind of like sexual experiences they have with a partner and they're not realistically looking at what was going on because what I mm-hmm. hear usually it leads to the sexless situations where kind of like a not even good enough sexual experiences. Like people like the excitement of the early relationship was creating some sparks, but there are mm-hmm. tons of challenges. And at times people's kind of like the, entry to those years of sexless relationship is when one of the partner has sexual dysfunction, as you mentioned. And I think they oh, don't absolutely. know what to do. Absolutely. I mean, I tell you a very common scenario, and this is a gendered scenario in my office. In my book, I talk a lot about gender, but I say in advance, this is not for the faint of heart because uh, there are exceptions to anything you could say about gender. And, you know, if you're not careful with people who there's exceptions, they're going to want to flame you on Amazon. So, you know, it's, it's really got to be careful when you talk about gender. And every rule you could say about gender has exceptions. But here's the thing. Most, most guys are really, really uncomfortable in any kind of situation where they feel they've disappointed their partner. This is something that pe- don't, people don't write about. I think this is going to be my next book. Guys hate the idea of disappointing their partner because for most guys, they haven't had that many truly intimate relationships where you can register disappointments, process disappointments. It can be okay. You can recover and repair after a disappointment. Most male relationships are not like that. So when a man has a relationship with a woman, a heterosexual couple, this is the first time he's ever been challenged to have an intimate relationship of that level. So the first time he sees her disappointed, it's a terrible stress for most men. For most men, the last time they really saw a partner disappointed like that was when they were, when they were three years old before they separated from their mother, mother psychologically. And they hated it. They used to hate when their mother was disappointed. So it, it's, a, it's a toxic experience for most men. And if you're a woman in a new relationship and you know what you're doing, you'll take your partner by the collar and say, look, I'm disappointed, but it's okay. It's really all right. We're going to be fine. You don't have to worry. He goes, you sure? She goes, yeah, it's really going to be okay. I'm not going to fall apart. And he's got to test that out a couple of times. But most guys, when they feel their partner is disappointed, they're going to withdraw because they're scared. And then withdrawal 
is something that most women absolutely can't stand because it makes them feel abandoned. So the guy feels shame, so he withdraws. She feels abandoned, so she gets upset and is very disappointed, and then he withdraws further, and it's what I call in my book a sex knot, and that is your people's natural reaction that ties this knot tighter and tighter and tighter, and sooner or later, they're in an awful situation, and neither of them have any erotic feeling. That's one. Another very common one is a guy loses an erection, and guys have this thing about their erections. There are very few guys who feel comfortable being with an intimate partner if they don't have an erection. Most guys think of it as like being at the job site without your tools, and obviously, a bedroom is not a job site, but you try and tell that to most guys and they're just going to look like you like you have three heads and so the most number one cause of guys avoiding sex with their partner is the fact that they're worried about their erections number one absolutely and so it's a cause of a huge number of sexual sexless marriage the guy just started to avoid because he was worried about his erection in that setting the woman sometimes if she's confident will initiate which she thinks might be nice and she'll do it a few times, but then after a while, she's the only one initiating. And very few women want to be the only one initiating because it's like dancing. They enjoy dancing, but they also want to be asked to dance. And so after a while, she gets unhappy about that. He registers her unhappiness, and then they're, they're, they're in a sexless situation again. Those are the big, big uh, situations that I see. And they relate to what is an unconscious and mostly unexamined and unquestioned expectation in heterosexual life, which I call the conventional script, which is a little bit like traditional couples dancing. She's the main object of attention, and he is the person who kind of leads the dance. He leads, and she's the main object of attention. And most couples kind of uh, fall into that, heterosexual couples. Gay couples have the advantage that they're not bound by that script. So they can do whatever they want. But for heterosexual couples, if you're not following the heterosexual, that conventional script, you get anxiety. So if he's not leading, if he's not confident, if he doesn't feel he knows how to lead or how to do it, then you're going to get anxiety. And uh, very often you see a guy who's not confident and then he gets even less confident in the relationship. And that's death. Because for a guy, it's not enough to just look good and have a six pack and be the object of attention. You got to be doing something. You got to be leading. Most women don't really want to lead in a sexual relationship. So there's this gendered thing, which really can cause cause a lot of difficulty. Well, I love all these pearls of wisdom that you shared with us. And, uh, and I, I know you, Thank you. <laughs> your books is full. Your book is full of those kind of like more in-depth information. So my invitation for our listeners is that if they like what they're hearing, definitely follow up with reading about it. So Stephen, tell us if our listeners want to kind of learn more about the book, about you, what are some of the places that they can find that information? Okay. Well, I, I hang out at my website, which is a sexualityresource.com. I also have a blog on psychology today, which is called Sexuality Today. And uh, I uh, have a book. It's available on Amazon. It's called Love Worth Making. That's love making with the word worth stuck in the middle. And it's the only book I ever wrote. So uh, Stephen Snyder, MD, you're going to find that book. Or you can go to my website and the book page is uh, loveworthmaking.com. Wonderful. As, as I shared with you and our listeners, I, I think that's a very valuable book. And I hope people are taking time to read it. And thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your experience and expertise with us. Nazneen, it's such a pleasure. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Same here. I hope you found our conversation useful. I know that if you are struggling with having a fulfilling sexual life in a long-term relationship, it's tough to work on it. I know that one cycle that some of my clients get stuck in is to avoid it. 
So perhaps you try to kind of introduce some novelty in the relationship, but then it just didn't work out. And what I see people do, they create lives that's not even allow them to have sexual connection with their partners because they're avoiding sex. They fill their schedule with activities and exercises and meetings and volunteering and all of those things because they're kind of scared about approaching this topic. But one thing that I can guarantee that if you're not addressing it and the issue has been going on for more than a year, this is not going to go away by its own. So my invitation for you is perhaps start with implementing one of the recommendations that Dr. Snyder mentioned during our interview, or even better, seek counseling. When you're working with a sex therapist, the sex therapist can help you to undo some of these patterns and facilitate a conversation around changing the aspects of the relationship that's not working for you. If you want to work with me, I have a couple openings right now. So you can contact me at drbali at sexology.com. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.